And so if you would, please turn with me in your Bible to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, which we will conclude this morning, the fourth chapter. You can find it in the navy blue Bibles uh, in your pews. Our text this morning is from chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. It begins on the bottom of page 1161 and concludes, as you probably guessed, on top of page 1162. And here's what we find there. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. By way of reminder, just to give you a refresher on where we've been in this last chunk of chapter 4, we've had in verses 20 through through 24, the putting off of the old man, the putting on of the new man. Verse 22, put off your old self, put off the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The rest of chapter 4 is about this putting off and putting on. Verse 25, put off falsehood and put on speaking the truth. Verses 26 and 27, put off unrighteous anger, put on righteous anger at the proper time that does not sin and does not endure past sundown. Verse 28, put off theft and stealing. Put on honest work that blesses others. This morning we conclude chapter 4 with the last three verses where Paul says put off corrupting talk, destructive talk, talk that grieves the Holy Spirit. Put on kind words, fit words, appropriate words that give grace to the hearers. What we can see in these three verses is that our God really cares about words. When God creates, and then this is something that's true not just here in Ephesians, but when you think about it, it is true throughout the Bible. When God creates, He does so with words. He speaks, and there's light, and water, sky, trees, animals, people. When Moses asks to see God's face, show me your glory, God in essence says no and then gives him words. Right? He passes by, he hides him in the cleft of the rock, and then proclaims the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, and so on. When the prophets of Israel are on the precipice of terrible judgment and no terrible judgment is coming. Sorry, I messed up my words. When the people of Israel are on the precipice of terrible judgment, God sends them prophets to give them words. And when Jesus speaks of the day of judgment, in Matthew 12, verse 36, He says, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. Jesus Himself, of course, is called in John chapter 1, the Word made flesh. 
We confess with our mouth, with words, that Jesus is Lord. We use words to declare our allegiance, right? To Jesus. God's ordinary way of bringing sinners into the kingdom forever is by preached words. At a wedding, bride and groom are bound together by vows of words. Even the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in the Reformed tradition, we call them visible words. God cares deeply about words. And so, I want to talk to you this morning about at least three things from our text that we can see uh, that God is saying through Paul about our words. First, words can bring rot or rottenness. Second, words can bring grief, particularly grief of the Holy Spirit. And third, words can bring life. So words can bring rot, words can bring grief, and our words can bring life. So words can bring rot. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So corrupting talk. Let's... Let's talk about corrupting talk. It's a very good translation. The word there, corrupting, the word literally means rotten or putrid. What sort of speech is Paul talking about there? Well, if you think, I mean, I guess I'm I'm not inviting you to think about it too long, but if you think about rottenness or putridness, that is something that corrodes and gets gross and disgusting and full of death over a period of time. You see, the reason why Paul is bringing up speech and the way we talk to each other, you remember he's addressed different things in this chunk of of chapter 4. Toward the end, he's talked about anger. right? He's talked about the putting off and the putting on. He's talked about theft. all, all, All sorts of different things. And now he's talking about words. And his goal, as has been his goal throughout chapter 4, is unity together and growth together and These two things go together, our unity and our growth. And so he says, let no corrupting talk, let no rotting talk, let no talk that results in rottenness happen. It'll lead over time to the breaking of unity, to the breaking of, to the dissolving of growth. Now, when we talk about godly speech, right? Godly speech and the, you know, the the thou shalt not engage in ungodly speech texts in the Bible, we tend, I think, we tend primarily to think of like cuss words and swear words. That is not what Paul primarily has in view, I don't think, but I don't think he would exclude things like that. The tricky thing about this is that the Bible forbids bad words, harsh words, critical words, cutting words, sarcastic words, and then at other times, uses all five. Oh, okay. For, for good and godly purposes. So, whenever it comes to godly speech, there are broad principles we have to obey, and then there are times that call for qualifiers. That's not so much its own sermon as its own book that I'm going to not try to preach to you here this morning, my goal is to provide some foundations, and then, you know, perhaps during the week, if there are lingering questions, you and I can build on some of these foundations together. Um, 
But the foundation, the first one to start with, is that there are ways of speaking that will result in rottenness, will result in corruption over time. That is, in the moment, the effect is not obvious. But over time, the rot will set in. This happens in churches. It happens in families. Parents, don't curse your children with your words. That sounds kind of mystical or, or, or medieval. Don't put curses. What do you mean? I mean, how about this? You'll never amount to anything. It's a curse, right? Its effects won't be obvious tomorrow morning, but it will in time. Remember Matthew fifteen eleven. It is what comes out of the mouth, Jesus says, that defiles us. Defilement, rot, similar kinds of not the same, but similar. So what is the alternative? Well, if you've heard the last couple of sermons, you already know that Paul has had this pattern of not this, but instead that. Okay? So we see here in our text once again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, not this, but only such as is good for building up. And then you have these qualifiers, as fits the occasion, and then a purpose, that it may give grace. So there are three things that describe our speech. Okay? That is not the corrupting kind. First, it builds up. Okay? That is, it helps to move your brothers and sisters in the church and in your household. It helps to move them from weakness to strength, from discouragement to encouragement, from immaturity to maturity. Right? It builds up. Second, it fits the occasion. Do you see that? Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So that's a call for discernment. Not every word is fit for every moment, even though it may be honest, even though it may be true. Not every word is fit for every moment. And then number three, it has the possibility that it may, that it may, and the likelihood of giving grace to those who hear, of giving grace to those who hear. That's that's quite a tall order, to bless people with the grace of God, the generosity of God in our speech. More on that later. We'll talk about the the call to generosity in this text. But I want to make sure you understand, because it's that our speech gives grace, not that grace entitles stupid speech. Right? That's quite the difference, yeah? Some people are really good at, at trying to show how well they understand grace by using you know, coarse humor without feeling guilty about it. But what's really interesting about the way this is phrased, there's actually one translation of Ephesians 4. When you get to this, when you get to this bit, it, it says, uh, let not the journey of your words sow corruption. I thought, whoa, that's, that's interesting. That you would speak words as it were and they're, they're going on a journey and where they're going to end up in the hearts of people. You want them to be built up, strengthened, encouraged, movement from weakness to strength, immaturity and maturity, downtroddenness to joy and gladness, etc. There's, um, and th- there's a way of speaking, of course, that encourages and even a way of, of speaking to yourself that encourages. Um, uh, there's a... Um, Oh goodness, what was it? It was a Calvin and Hobbes comic 
I believe, and Calvin wakes up all grumpy one morning, and his mother says, you know, well, well, instead of complaining and whining, be glad and be positive, and you'll feel better. And he just rolls his eyes, and then he starts, you know, oh, it's such a beautiful day. I just feel great. Isn't that wonderful? And then the next panel, you just see him staring at the ground, and he goes, oh, I do feel better. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, man. Hate it. Right? Yeah. And so, so yeah, I mean, your, your words have the power. If, the, if your words can, can bless your own self like that, so they can do for others if you put them to work to those ends. But more than that, you know, as I said earlier, like God delights to bless words in order that people might be saved. Right? The preaching of the gospel is the giving of words. And, and, and God uses those words to rescue men and women out of sin and death. And so, again, for Christians, that means words matter. Words, therefore can bring rot. And I said the second thing is words can bring grief. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that seems to come out of nowhere. I don't know if you're, if you're thinking like I was. I, read it, I thought, okay, I get, let no corrupting talk, got it, yep, uh, speak with grace and, and so on. Yes, this all makes sense. Actually a very naturally pla- natural place to go given Paul's list of Kind of don't do this, but rather do this. It'll be okay, baby. (laughs) Uh, Probably the reason it seems to come out of nowhere is that we tend to apply the language of grieving the Spirit conceptually only to like spiritual gifts. But here it's found right in between, sandwiched in between, verses about speech and how we talk to each other. Because God cares deeply about our words. In fact, our Father means to conquer the world by the power of word and spirit through the hands and feet and mouths of a discipled, united body of believers in Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's work, right? So first let us remember, what is the Holy Spirit's primary work? The Holy Spirit's primary work Uh, According to Jesus, the first reason that the Holy Spirit would come and fill God's people is to glorify Him. To glorify Jesus by strengthening His words. The Holy Spirit was sent to testify of Jesus or to bear witness about Him. That's John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me okay so the spirit's work is to bear witness to the words of jesus the spirit is if if you want an analogy the holy spirit is 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 personal more on that in a moment he is personal but he is also as it were like a megaphone for the words of god the holy spirit living in us translates the word for us. And I don't mean translates it from Hebrew into English. I mean translates it from you shall love thy neighbor as thyself to go over there (laughs) to that neighbor five feet away from you and start loving them. Yes, the annoying one. The Spirit amplifies the words of Jesus and works so miraculously in our hearts such that all God's words, all God's commands, all God's promises 
becomes sweet in our ears. It is the Holy Spirit who brings God's Word to us when we forget it. Also in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, starts out the same way. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's cool, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I've said to you. How does the Spirit teach us all things? By bringing to us the words that God has said. Jesus said that this, that this, Jesus said these words in the presence of men, in the company of men, who would one day write portions of the New Testament that would live forever. Have you ever wondered how they remembered all of it? I mean, like if you, if you have a red letter Bible and you go in, into that neighborhood of John 15, 16, 17, it's just, it looks like somebody dumped red ink all over your pages. Because it's just, I mean, long form teaching. How'd they remember all that? Well, that would be the promise right here. Bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God cares deeply about His words. So deeply that He sent forth His Spirit to make sure that every bit of it would be remembered, written down, preserved, and illuminated to my cold heart and your cold heart again and again and again. And that is why it grieves the Spirit when we misuse the gift of communication and language and words. Because we know Christians, we know perhaps better than any other people what the power of God's words can do. It's why we learn them, preach them, memorize them, sing them, confess them. And whenever we use our words to tear down, to intimidate, to belittle, to get revenge, we grieve the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is, dare I say it, obsessed with God's words. Committed to the glory and the hope that God's words would be ours. Would be on our lips, in our hearts, in our minds. Why? Do you know why? Because we're going to be together forever. Like that, Did you know so far, that's the whole rationale for godly speech. Look again at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay? So the Spirit cares about our words and our speech because we're going to be talking together and singing together forever. A day of redemption is coming when according to the Lord Jesus, all of our words will be very much considered. Because we have been sealed for a day when we will use our words to build each other up and give each other grace forever. Forever. What does this mean? Well, it means, first of all, we have to totally reorient, renovate the way we think of our words. We usually think of our words, now follow me closely here, we usually think of our words as a tool that helps us to further our own goals. Right? So this is what I want. I mean, it could be, it could be I want, you know, uh, a raise, I want, uh, <laughs> I want something from mom and dad, I want her to say yes when I ask her to marry me, right? We're going to use our words to get what we want. That's natural. We should more and more 
think of our words as, <laughs> as power tools that build up the body of Christ. Right? So not just used to accomplish our goals, but used to build up. That's the first verse that we looked at. Build up the body with our words. We should think of our words as tools that build up the body in the church and the, the, the body of people at our kitchen table, right? We care about the way that we talk because we're going to be talking together and singing together forever. So, this is really important. And you're, you're kind of getting a sense it's really important, but also it goes wrong like all the time, right? Whether it's in the church or in the home or, or anywhere else, we, we misuse our words, This is a very common thing. So when it goes wrong, what do we do? Maybe the better question is, what do we need? Because sometimes our speech, it's not just that it fails to build up. It wrecks. It tears down. So how do we rebuild? Well, look at the text. We rebuild with forgiveness. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, we know the calling is to use our words well, is to use our words to build up. God has invested that kind of power in them. So, So much more should we use them to that end, to that effect. It often goes wrong. And so the what do we do when it goes wrong is right here, forgiveness. You see, at the end of our passage, verse 31-32, Paul gives this list, right? Um, Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. It's all different shades of sinful speech, right? Bitterness is anger in the slow cooker. It's when you replay the movie of what they did over and over again and over again, so that you can stay mad about it. Bitterness is a really good student, right? It it studies really carefully. (laughs) It remembers everything. And is probably, in my own estimation, the number one killer of marriages. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I make sure to give every couple the three best words of marriage advice that I know. Keep short accounts. Best three words of marriage advice that I know. Keep short accounts. Forget, forgive all your offenses quickly. I don't care how in love you are or how compatible you are. No marriage is a match for long-burning bitterness. Same advice for churches, though. Bitterness kills. It probably in the moment feels really righteous, but it is absolutely deadly. So what's next? Bitterness. Next we have wrath, anger, clamor. Okay, we're going to jump through these kind of quickly. Wrath, the Greek word there is actually just the word for passion, which is any emotion that's out of control. Just think like emotional vomiting, absolutely unchecked passions. Just unbounded, unchecked, unfiltered, raw reaction. Now our culture tends to call such displays authentic. God just calls them sin. Your sin doesn't get less sinful because it feels more honest, right? 
Okay, so that's wrath. Anger. If you're wondering, yes, that is from the same uh, root word as back in verse 26, in your anger do not sin. So this is the sinful kind, yeah? And then clamor, which is really just the word for shouting. Shouting. So is all shouting wrong? Well, no. The Psalms call us to lift up shouts of joy. Jesus chased thieves out of the temple with a whip, and I'd reckon He wasn't whispering. There's a time for volume, especially when weighty words need to stretch out and fill a large room. But most of our angry yelling is sinful. And finally, malice. Malice. That's a very interesting word. I I love that Paul put it last in the list. I'm going to tell you why. The English word malice, if you look up the English word, it just means intention to do evil. So in our, in our legal system, you, you may have heard the term malice aforethought, meaning you meant to do it. But the Greek word here that's translated malice actually means the perverting of a virtue so that a good thing serves an evil purpose. The perverting of a virtue such that a good thing serves an evil purpose purpose. Translation. Think of what he's just said. Wrath, anger, clamor. Translation. Some people know how to rip others apart with blazing hot anger. Others know how to gently whisper daggers with a smile. That's malice. And it's just as destructive So what's the solution? We've heard the thou shalt not again. We know, I mean, based on Paul's pattern, we know the thou shalt is coming because that's been his style. Look at verse 32 again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We're going to look at this and also we're going to weave back in some of the previous verses. Let's take a look at these words though. Be kind to one another. The word kindness here, kind, it can also mean generous. So if you contrast it, as you're meant to, with wrath and anger and clamor, shouting, which is the negative extreme, then this is using your speech in a a positive way. Okay? And, And even, again, you can translate it generous. So I would say even like a positive extreme. You see, Paul understands speaking as taking action. And if you're taking notes, you should write that down. Speaking is taking action. I'm going to go somewhere with that in a minute. It is is a good action. Okay? If it's in kindness, it is the kind of action that builds up. It is not the same as niceness. Okay? If niceness was the command, Paul, as well as Jesus, and never mind the prophets, would absolutely fail the test. Okay? Also, I recently learned, just a fun aside, that the word nice in its etymology uh, actually means stupid. (laughs) Seriously, I mean, look it up. Look it up. So there's a fun trick. If someone's really annoying you, you can say, man, you are so nice. (laughs) Niceness is usually bound up with politeness, okay? But kindness is different. Kindness is about erring on the side of charity, generosity. In other words, assuming the best of another person until they give you sufficient evidence to, to assume in the other direction. At that point, it's assuming with some proof. 
Generosity, kindness, puts the best spin on another person's words. And most importantly, for our definition, it's a generosity that includes speaking in a measured way. Okay? Speaking in a measured way. In other words, so let me just, I mean, you can, you can work through the application here with me. I, I know I'm speaking kind of broadly here. But let's say, and, and work with me as I try to attach numbers to it, let's say you could hit with a level two offense. Right? One out of ten. Level two. Not a big deal. Kindness in this sense means you respond with level one. Speech. You respond to a level five offense with three or two or one. That kind of generosity. Right? Rather than matching offense, well, I'm going to hit you back just as hard. This is the kind of kindness, generosity that's able to endure. I think also we, we're, if this is a Venn diagram, you're catching some intersection with meekness. Okay? So kind to one another, tender-hearted. Now this is a weird word in Greek. It's weird to us, I should say. So it is because for us, the heart is the seat of our emotions, Right? So if, if, if you would think nothing of it in, in our culture if somebody said, I love you with all my heart, right? But imagine you didn't grow up in our culture. What you just heard, you know, like in some of the languages, I love you with my blood pumping muscle. That's weird, right? So in different cultures, the seat of the emotion is in different places, okay? In some cultures, I believe it is in the kidneys. So I don't know how that works. Like, I love you with both my kidneys, I, I don't know if that's what you'll find in the, in the literature, but in, in Paul's culture, it was not uncommon to speak of deep tenderheartedness and to use the bowels. Mom and dad, I'm sorry, you'll explain that one over lunch. Okay? But that's literally what he says. Tender boweled is the literal translation there. I think the ESV guys did us a kindness when they translated it tenderhearted. But you know what it means, don't you? I mean... You know what he's getting at. It means not necessarily, we're not saying all your speech sounds like Mr. Rogers. Again, Paul and Jesus and the prophets would fail that test. It does mean that when you go talk to someone, your internal condition, your internal constitution toward them is one of warmth, not of cold revenge. Not of exhausted, I've had it with you and now you're going to understand it. And then the cold revenge, not I'm really going to let you have it so you understand what you've done. So that, that's tender hearted. In other words, you're able to be moved by the hurts of another. This is especially true in marriage. Like husbands and wives, you should be moved by the hurts of your spouse. Not cold and indifferent toward them. So what does this mean for us practically? Well, what I want you to notice is that, again, of course, we're dealing with words and how we use them. I want to get at some application here before we wrap up today by observing first that a lot of our most destructive speech can hide underneath jokes, okay? I'm not talking about the inability to take a joke. That can be its own kind of trouble. I think one of the greatest gifts God can give to a congregation, say, to a church family, is thick skin, long fuses, and loud laughter. But, let me just put it this way. 
if you can't or generally can't give a compliment without following it up with some kind of cutting joke, you probably need to think about whether or not that's a barrier to kindness. This is true in churches. It's true in homes. I think it is especially true. I think, I think husbands and fathers struggle with this in particular. But I'll address both. Like parents, moms and dads, do you give unqualified encouragement? So if, you're, if your son or daughter has never once heard encouragement that can't stand up on two feet for two seconds without getting tripped by a joke, I think you need to change the way you speak. Right? I'm so proud of you, <laughs> given what you used to be. That's pretty good for you. I love you. I love you, even though you're, you're, you're a lot to deal with. Right? Un- unqualified encouragement. I mean, isn't that funny? I mean, maybe uh, once, but all the time. All the time, that is not encouragement. That is a constant reminder of an unattainable standard. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So that's the first application. Here's the second one. Paul never dignifies the tendency of our flesh to retreat into silence as a way of building each other up. Do you notice silence was not an option here when he talks about how we speak to each other? So that, that should grant you in church life and in home life, that should grant you all sobriety and joy with your words. In other words, I'm saying use your words. Use them. Use them. Use them to build up. Use them to encourage. Use them to speak joy and peace. Use them to speak forgiveness. Use them to speak love and blessing. Use them. So often I think we, and when I say we, I especially mean husbands, tend to retreat to quiet. I mean, all of us can be guilty of this at various times. And usually the the way we defend it is like, well, look, if I talk, I'm going to sin. All right, fine. Right? If you're certain about that, then don't talk. Start talking as soon as you can when that's not the case. Okay? I think we have a tendency, a temptation to retreat into quiet and to talk less when things are uncomfortable or when there's a fight or when the kids are difficult. We retreat and we get quiet. I think, again, it can be true of anyone. I think it's especially true of men. Or we do the silent treatment, which is a... It's a sin of abdication. It's a sin of retreat, brothers. Is Abigail getting loud? I was, I was going to publicly apologize to Marissa. Y'all make sure and tell her later. But Marissa, I'm sorry. Sometimes you... And sometimes you go quiet until you can't be quiet anymore, at which point you get mad and you blow up. Right? And unfortunately, some men only know how to lead when they get mad. So they abdicate, 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 quiet, 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 retreat, 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 until, well, now I'm mad, I'm going to stop being quiet, and I'm going to use all my words. Your first sin was abdication and retreat. Now your second sin is wrath and clamor. You're trying to sin your way out of your sin. Not a good plan. 
I want you to notice something. We started with the idea of rot and rotten speech. Speech that over time will break down our unity. Now in verse 31, Paul deals with what I think are short-term hits. So you have words that over the long course will result in rottenness and corruption. And you have words, anger, wrath, clamor, that will hit you right now. That's not a long-term rot. It's a short-term explosion. And so what is the solution both to manifestations of ungodly, sinful anger that's long-term, long arc, and that's short-term explosion? The answer to both, dear saints, is forgiveness. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now all that kindness and tender-heartedness isn't just sort of out there existing somewhere in the ether. It's, it's oriented toward a goal. What is the goal? What is the purpose of kindness and tenderheartedness? Dear saints, it is the fuel for your forgiveness. And if Christian churches are going to get on in unity and grow together, we need quite a lot of forgiveness in stock, ready on the shelves. So what is forgiveness? Well, most basically, look at the text. Put all the bitterness and anger and wrath and malice away. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Forgive. So what is forgiveness? It's putting away the bitterness. As I said earlier, bitterness is replaying that video of what they did over and over again. You know, you know where we are especially good at that? When we've been wounded by words. It's usually easier, I've, I've found, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone in the room, but I have found that it's easier to forgive particular actions maybe than particularly wounding words. And nothing replays on the mental player quite like wounding words. So, Are you replaying the movie or just the soundtrack, right? So, so you have to put it away. Put it away. Put away all bitterness, anger, malice. You'll have to do it more than once probably. Even more than once with the same offense, y'all. Put it down. Put it away. Unplug the movie. Put it away. And do not, for heaven's sake, confess it to someone else. Well, let me tell you what they said three years ago. Oh. Remember Paul's method of replacement. Not just a no, but fill the gap with a yes. So put it away and replace it with something. With what? With kindness. With tenderheartedness. Not hoping for their destruction or hurt, but hoping for their gospel-proclaiming triumph. And whenever we bring up forgiveness, the question always comes up, like, do I have to forgive because my situation is, you know, complicated? And there are complicated situations. So the, do I always have to forgive? The answer is yes. That's not, that doesn't always take the shape of forgive and act like everything's okay. Now, I will say, most often that is what happens. That is how it works. Forgive quickly, return to fellowship, and live like everything's okay. Most often, that is how it looks. There are special circumstances. Situations do vary. And I just say at the same time, we're all tempted to always think our situation is special. Right? Sometimes it is. But beware of the temptation. Can you forgive someone when they haven't asked for it, asked for forgiveness? I've heard that one before. The answer is, yes, you can. Well, but they haven't asked. Okay, So they haven't received it. True. They haven't received 
the gift of your forgiveness. That's correct. But it's a gift. I mean, you can still wrap it up, put a nice bow on it, and put it by the door. Right? And when the day of reconciliation comes, you've got the gift ready. It's ready to go. It's been ready to go for a while. Wrapped and clean with a big pretty bow on it. Forgiveness does not require the removal of consequences. It does require removal of malice that is desiring their harm and suffering. And as much restoration of relationship as is wise, which is usually all of it, but not always. Okay? So what would be like the special circumstance? Well, I mean, God forbid if, uh, if, if somebody uh, in the future babysat Abigail and then we found out later there was abuse happening. And the person comes to me and, and repents and says, will you forgive me? I'm duty-bound by Jesus to forgive them. I'd be an idiot to ever let them watch my kids again. Right? Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that I won't call the police. You, you bet I will. Um, at least. That's all I have to say about that. So we're called, therefore, to radical forgiveness. Where do we get that kind of strength? From remembering that our Lord Jesus has forgiven us. That is where the strength for forgiveness comes from. And that is the only steady source of forgiveness, by the way, in your heart. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness is at root imitation. Imitation. How deep does the forgiveness well go? You know, if it's like a well and you drop the bucket in it, how deep does it go? Well, how deep do you need? <laughs> how deep does it need to be for you? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What a crazy thing to pray, y'all. Lord, if I stop forgiving others, please stop forgiving me. That is the root and the fuel of all of our forgiveness, recognizing what our God has forgiven in us. That Christ on the cross forgives our sins all the way down to the bottom, not letting one gnarly scrap of guilt remain. He drinks fully the cup of wrath so that He can set us free. And what marvelous joy is given to us that we get to then hand out to everyone around us. Be kind to one another, therefore, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are God's words, and God really cares about His words. So let us care for ours. Let us rejoice and proclaim and confess all of His. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we ask for help in this. We need Your help in it, so we ask for it now that we would speak in such a way as to please you, that we would speak in such a way as, uh, as, as, our, oh, as our words would be Jesus' words, as our way of speaking would be modeled after him. This we ask in his name. Amen.